Egyptian History Podcast, episode 11. It's off to Punt we go. Welcome back. Last episode, we ended the 4th dynasty and began our transition into the 5th. Overseen by the royal mother Kentikaus, a new king named Userkaf had stabilised the royal succession and brought new policies into the government. The establishment of a temple devoted exclusively to Ray at Abu Sir, northwest of the capital city of Memphis, heralded a new theological paradigm. No longer would the kings of Egypt devote their resources solely to their own glorification and to spectacular monuments for their solar apotheosis. Temples to the great god Re would now complement the pyramids and ensure that the solar deity was given the veneration which he deserved. Of course, the king still retained pretty strong control over the sun temple. The priests and attendants were probably still appointed by him personally, and the material goods that the temple required, such as linen, bread, beer, and meat for offerings, came from the royal palace. They were harvested at the extensive royal domains throughout Egypt, then brought to the main administration buildings in Memphis, and finally redistributed to both the Sun Temple and the temples attached to the pyramid itself. As long as this system functioned smoothly, the temple operated pretty comfortably, while still being within the control of the king. If he wanted, he could cut off the supplies at any time, but of course, he would never want to do that. Risking the sun god's displeasure just to spite a few priests? Unthinkable. Of course, I'm describing it colourfully when I say that there even was a possibility of spiteful relations between the king and the priesthood. After all, with 4,000 years of history behind us, it is well ingrained in anyone with a smattering of historical knowledge that clergy and monarchy can often be at loggerheads. Whether this happened in the 5th dynasty is total speculation, and probably says more about the historian proposing it than it does about historical reality itself. The truth is, the priesthood was a very, very small group in this period. In fact, it was so small that some scholars, such as Hans Goedeker, suggest that it did not even exist as a full-time profession until quite late in the 5th dynasty. To some extent, this is certainly true, in that the priests, whose names and titles have survived, often fill a variety of functions, of which priest is just one. They fulfilled roles in other areas of the administration, and if these jobs are real tasks rather than just honorary titles, then it would appear that the average priest only served in the temple occasionally. A commonly touted figure is approximately one month out of every year. The priests of the temple were organised into small work gangs, which we now call files, spelled P-H-Y-L-E. It is a Greek term, as so many of our Egyptological words are, and in the Greek context, it tends to mean tribe, or clan, or community connections in general. The idea seems to be that it refers to the sort of ancestral connections and groupings which informed the developing communities of the Hellenic peoples. But how applicable is that to the Egyptian context? In Egyptian, a file is called a zar, pluralized as zau. A professor in New York University, Anne Macy Roth, 
proposes that the Egyptian Zau are a relic of the pre-dynastic era, formed around tribal totems which give them their identity. The Zau could be understood as an administrative revival of these more primeval concepts. The modern equivalent might be a government establishing a bureaucratic department named after a Native American tribe, or a church creating new ministers, each collected in a group named after one of the Twelve Apostles. This idea that the Zau came from these pre-royal totemic tribal groupings has been disputed by some other scholars. An alternative was suggested that the Zau derived from early groups focused on ships, which is perhaps reflected in the hieroglyphs themselves. A Zau, besides being referred to by its name, is denoted by a sign that seems to be a length of twisted and knotted rope. Now, in basic logic, a twisted rope is far more likely to refer to some kind of labour or ship crew which actually use rope than a religious totem. I tend to lean on the side of the ship crew idea, but I think Anne Macy Roth is onto a very basic truth, even if her explanation doesn't quite address it the way that I would suggest. Egyptian ships were used very early in their history. The Gertzian wall paintings which I discussed in episode 1, and the rock carvings near Aswan, which show an early king sailing in a flotilla, demonstrate that from the very early periods of their history, the Egyptians were developing and using water transport. Now, the ships used in these images certainly required a crew to sail them, and the grouping of individuals into this kind of mini-community probably did help develop some sense of larger national community beyond basic village life. But let's look at this from another angle. We may ask ourselves, where did the crew of these ships, and the ships themselves, come from? Were they a random grouping of individuals from all over Egypt, who just met on the ship and then worked together? Or were the ships themselves built in villages, and then crewed by individuals who all came from the same small community? Given the very basic organisation of Egypt in this early period, I am willing to bet that the construction of boats did not take place in some kind of central royal shipyard. Remember, I am speaking about the pre-dynastic period here, rather than the 5th dynasty, where evidence for shipyards is very much available. It is more likely that these early boats were built in villages up and down the Nile, and then used by the local inhabitants for their fishing and transport needs. The boats we are talking about here are far more basic than the enormous wooden ships used by Khufu and the kings of the 4th dynasty, which were buried beside their pyramids. These ships would have been made out of bundled reeds and rope, and were probably not very large. Their carrying capacity, on average, was probably about 10 people or so, which is large enough to transport one or two families, or a couple of men with a reasonable catch of fish or load of materials. Anything larger, and you're looking at some serious economic sophistication, of which we have very little evidence from such an early period. So if the ships were locally made, it is reasonable to suggest that they were locally crewed. In other words, the village may have sent 
ten young men or boys to crew these boats when the king needed them. In this sense, we have the very early nascent form of the za'u or files. But villages and communities don't evolve out of nothing. They tend to congregate around certain central pillars, such as the family, a shared environment, defensive needs, and, of course, spiritual centres. In the early tribal days, it is not unreasonable to expect that early Egyptian communities came together around a combination of these factors, and that the lingering influence of such organisation filtered through into the way that they organised their communal ships and crews. In this sense, I think what we have is a synthesis of Anne Macy Roth's tribal ideas with the ship-crew paradigm proposed by other scholars. As is the case in history, the middle road between two theories is the most easy to accept, so it's the one I take here, but do recognise that this is just one idea amongst at least three. So, 5th dynasty priestly groups, the Zau, were a descendant of pre-dynastic ship crews, which were themselves the result of communal efforts and cohesion in the tribal period. In this respect, the idea of the Zau, or file, as the end result of early tribal communities, has a lot of merit. It just needed to be clarified and twisted slightly to conform to the evidence that has survived. So this is how the Sun Temple and the mortuary temples attached to the pyramid were staffed. The priests referred to by several different titles whose actual functions we are still unclear about. They were grouped into their zau or files. The archives record the existence of five total zau in the period. Each of these was subdivided into two divisions, one of which would serve in the temple each month before being relieved by the next division. In this manner, ten months of the year were divided between five Zau files. I imagine the overlap simply worked itself out. The Zau were not the only ones working in the temple. Scribes and porters did some of the more fundamental work that the temple needed in order to operate smoothly. Scribes would record deliveries and supplies as they came in, and the porters were responsible for taking these to the relevant storerooms of the complex. The priests themselves were responsible primarily for making the offerings to the cult image. In the case of the Sun Temple, the complex was dominated by a single enormous obelisk in the centre of a courtyard. In front of this, we can maybe expect that a statue of the sun god or the king was put in place. In the courtyard, the offerings were anointed and purified with libations, which ran off into small gutters that were located in the floor. Purification was a fundamental component of Egyptian offerings. The notion of cleansing or anointing an offering or individual made them worthy of presentation before the gods who were, of course, perpetually immaculate. A special priest, called a Wab priest, was responsible for the purification of offerings and the anointing of the cult statue. Beyond the Wab priest, the Chemnetcha made the offerings, and was involved daily in the administration of the temple. Chemnetcha, meaning servant of the god, 
was the most common title of a priest during the 5th dynasty, and it also seems to have been the title most commonly used by elites and nobles who would have only served in the temple on an occasional part-time basis. Complementing the Hemnetje were the Kentiyu She, who seem to have been a jack-of-all-trades position, doing everything from porting, accounting, to guarding, and offering. Their exact role is a matter of ongoing study, and the surviving references do not offer us much in the way of understanding when it comes to their status and purpose. This organisation was the way that the Sun Temple of Neken Rei, established by Usakaf, operated. When that king died around his seventh regnal year, the throne was passed to his young son Sahure. Sahure was conceived by Usarkaf and his great royal wife, Neferhetepes. His name translates to the one who is beside Rei. Like Kafre, Jedefre, and Menkaure, Sahure continued the tradition of increasing association between the king and the sun god. His name presents him as one at the side of Rei, giving him status akin to an equal or a near-equal supporter. The vast majority of evidence for Sahure and his reign comes from his pyramid in the region just north of Saqqara called Abu Sir. For the next few episodes, Abu Sir will be the primary centre of royal tomb building, eventually manifesting itself as a complete fully-fledged necropolis to go with Giza, which is just to the north, and Saqqara, just to the south. Sahure's pyramid was the first major construction in this region, except for the Sun Temple of Usirkaf, which is very slightly north of the necropolis itself. The pyramid, named Ka-Ba-Sahure, or Sahure's Ba-Shines, the Ba being the soul, was 47 metres high and encased in fine white limestone, some of which remains in situ along the causeway, which continues to be the focus of intense excavation by Egyptian teams and archaeologists from the Czech Republic. By the standards of the 4th dynasty, Sahure's pyramid is small. Indeed, none of the 5th dynasty monuments will come close to matching the sheer size of the Giza pyramids, but what they lack in size, they make up for in complexity and the scope of their functions. The sun temples complemented the pyramid and expanded the range of the religious functions being undertaken in the necropolis. While within the pyramid structures themselves, the offering places reached new heights of sophistication. This is encapsulated most eloquently in the beautiful and extensive imagery of Sahure's Pyramid Causeway. As you know, the causeway was an enclosed walkway extending from the Valley Temple, adjacent to the Nile, a lake or a canal, and reaching up to the Mortuary Temple, which sat against the base of the pyramid. Causeways in the 4th dynasty had been beautifully decorated, and showed the king receiving offerings from his agricultural estates, and making venerations to the various deities they favoured. Sahure took this program a step into the real world, and began to portray the ruler's lifetime achievements. Among the various elements we will see in Sahure's causeway were the construction of an immense royal fleet, the dispatch of an expedition to Punt, military exercises and training regimes for soldiers, hunting and fishing scenes, 
and the royal family sitting at ease, surveying the many wondrous elements of their kingdom. Scenes of Sahure and his royal fleet are immense, they're gorgeously carved and intricate. Unfortunately, the images I am working from come from an academic publication, and are both under copyright and printed in a very large format that is difficult to scan. The Encyclopaedia Britannica has a small example of the ships in question, which I've linked to on my website, but this doesn't quite do the scene justice. I only hope my vocabulary is extensive enough to conjure the scene for you. At least nine large sailboats are depicted in this scene, which covered a good seven large limestone blocks. At the stern of one sailboat, King Sahure steers the rudder and directs the sail of the ship, while to either side of the river, royal attendants run in rank and file on what must be the banks of the Nile or a canal. The sail is intricately decorated in small floral patterns set within squares, and a vulture flies over the scene, bringing divine favour to the king's endeavour. Before the king, small attendants guide ropes and pull at oars. These sailors are referred to as Aper Semeru Sahure, or Crew of the Semeru of Sahure. If you remember back to our early episodes, the Semer, or companions, were among the king's elite attendants and confidants. Close to the king, and recognised as part of his inner circle, they formed the social core of the royal power structure. Their representation as oarsmen is probably fictional, but it gives the actual people a prominence and close association with the king standing in the stern, and represents artistically the social status which they enjoyed in life. Sahure's fleet was built for two purposes. The first is fairly straightforward. The king wanted to enhance his prestige by commissioning something that hadn't really been done, or at least recorded, before. The second was a bit more extensive in terms of its difficulty and reach. The fleet was going to Punt, a semi-mythical land far to the south of Egypt. Early kings had traded with Punt, but as far as we know, Sahure was the first to commission a full-scale royal expedition. It is this expedition which forms the second of this episode's iconography themes. While Punt was a real place, I call it semi-mythical because its location remains uncertain, and it appears in stories and myths as a sort of Narnia-esque region. It's referred to in passing to demonstrate a protagonist's worldly journeys, but never really described in any great detail. A synonym for Punt was Tarnetjer, or Land of the God. The term doesn't define which god, so we can't get a sense of geography from the name, but its vague and divine associations suggest that the area was only vaguely defined, and was an area of some mysticism. Scholars have reconstructed the location of Punt in a very rough sense, and now believe it to have been on the eastern coast of the Horn of Africa, comprising areas that are now part of the modern nations of Ethiopia and Eritrea. Other scholars place it around Yemen, in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, and it is possible that it was actually a mix of the two. If the Egyptians visited both areas, they may have referred to the general area simply as Punt. Punt was a source of spices, 
and the trees which produce frankincense and myrrh, both of which were traded extensively in Africa and Arabia during antiquity. The Egyptians prized these trees greatly, and called them anej, which roughly translates to sweet-smelling. In one scene, Sahure sits before the trees and enjoys their scent, and carves off small saplings, either to give to favoured courtiers, or to plant and increase the crop. Now whether the king went personally on the expedition to Punt is unclear. The scenes of the king sailing his ship suggest that he did, but apart from a few scattered references to campaigns, we actually have no clear indications from the old kingdom that the ruler left the land of Egypt in person. The king was vital to the stability and sacred structure of the cosmos, and a journey outside the kingdom was a dangerous undertaking. Were the king to die beyond Egypt's borders, his soul risked getting lost and being unable to unite with Ray. Such a state of affairs could shake and break the very foundations of the earth. Were there restrictions on a king leaving Egypt? Could he truly do as he liked, or did these cosmic responsibilities bind him to a life within the borders? Later kings campaigned outside the Nile Valley in person, but of all the evidence to survive from the Old Kingdom, none of it really tells us whether the king was active or simply dispatched his servants and officials on his behalf. I'm going to go out on a small limb and say that maybe Sahure did go to Punt. The images of him steering the ship, and his apparent celebration at the end of this expedition, suggest, at least tentatively, that he made the journey in person. I have no real proof of this, just a vague feeling, and I'm quite happy to say that this is by no means an open and shut case. It helps with the narrative a bit though, so let's just go with that. The journey to Punt is recorded in other later sources as taking quite a long time. Depending on the route taken, it could be a matter of weeks or a matter of months. The first option, which is far more likely, is that the fleet set out down the coast of the Red Sea on a relatively straightforward voyage. Aside from the fact that this journey is far more direct, far quicker, and far easier, I suspect it is the more correct option for Sahure's journey on account of the very large port facilities that are coming to light on the Egyptian coast of the Red Sea. Thanks to listener Simon Rees, who turned me onto a Daily Mail article, the port facilities are finally being revealed to the general public after their initial excavation some years ago. They are being uncovered by the French Archaeological Institute, commonly referred to as the IFAO, or Institut Francais d'Archéologie Orientale and comprise a port facility that seems to have been operational on this coast from the reign of Khufu at least. In Khufu's reign, small references were made to the gold of Punt, and it is possible we can begin to date the Egyptian trading expeditions to the early 4th dynasty. Sahure's fleet almost certainly sailed from this Red Sea port, if it did use the Red Sea journey. The area is large enough to accommodate nine ships with relative safety, and the facilities were extensive enough to unload them in a fairly short period of time. The port is located at Wadi el-Jarf, which is approximately southeast of the capital at Memphis. The journey out to the port would have taken a week or so on foot, and followed what is known as a wadi, or dry riverbed. Whether Sahure went on the journey to Punt itself, 
he certainly would have come to the port in order to dispatch the expedition and invoke the divine protection for the enormously expensive ships he was sending into mystical lands. Egypt was not plentiful in trees during antiquity, and wood good enough for large-scale shipbuilding had to be imported from Syria and Palestine, making any ship of significant size a hugely expensive investment. Add to that the cost of feeding men for several weeks, providing fresh water while at sea, and supplies enough for trading with Punt, and you should be getting a sense that Sahure's expedition was among the greater undertakings of the 5th dynasty rulers. The prestige he felt it brought to him personally, and to his household, was celebrated in the grand confines of his pyramid causeway. Though the scene is not entirely complete, the sections which follow the depictions of his fleet show that Sahure presented the Punt expedition as one of the great moments in his reign. In the third of our themed scenes, which seems to take place after the expedition, the king is seated on his throne, surrounded by his family and courtiers, while the frankincense trees of Punt sit before him. The king reaches out a hand to touch the trees, and enjoy his accomplishments. To either side of his throne, lions are depicted on leashes held by an attendant. The queen mother, Neferhetepes, sits before her son, and in front of her daughter-in-law, the royal wife, Meret Nebti. Apparently, Neferhetepes was quite the influence at her son's court, or at least significant enough to be prominent over the royal wife. In another scene, Sahure trims the branches of a frankincense tree, while behind him stands Neferhetepes, and behind her, and slightly smaller, Queen Meret Nebti. Remembering back to Queen Kentikaus, who dominated Egypt as one of the most influential women yet appearing in our story, it is interesting to see Neferhetepes so firmly ensconced in the royal imagery, and, more importantly, seeming to outrank the king's actual wife. The status of mothers in Egypt is not yet fully understood, as usual. But in the royal family during the early 5th dynasty, the mother of the king was without doubt the most important female in the kingdom. Her role as the one who birthed and raised the future Horus, Sahure, made her semi-divine in her own right, and like the royal wife, she could make a claim to the identity of Hathor. Hathor's identity was extremely fluid, depending on circumstances, and her relationships with the gods around her, Re, Horus, etc., changed as needed. Neferhetepes would have filled the role of Hathor in her guise as caregiver and protectoress of Sahure, while Meret Nebti filled the role as divine counterpart and wife. Meret Nebti, though apparently subordinate to her mother-in-law, remained close to the king and was greatly favoured. In a scene from the Pyramid Causeway, she sits at Sahure's knee, directing him as he baits and captures waterfowl. She points towards the birds, clad in the white dress commonly worn by Egyptian women of wealth. Her titles refer to her as greatly favoured of the king, and yet beyond these few attestations, we know very little about her. Before the discovery of the scenes I am detailing today, her name was not even known for certain, and it was originally proposed to be Neferet Nebti, which we now know to be not true. The king's family and followers, depicted on the walls of this causeway, are more visible than ever before, 
and we can see the royal family in its absolute heyday. Where Sneferu had vague scenes of offering bearers, and Khufu's buried ships tell us a hint of his journeys upon the Nile, Sahure recorded the work of a lifetime. The great fleet of the king that took the Egyptians down to Ethiopia and east to the Arabian Peninsula. Where Khafre had commemorated himself in the Sphinx and its adjacent temple, the sun temple built by Userkaf and completed by Sahure united the concepts of sun god and human rule. Where Menkaure had established a smaller pyramid with a larger mortuary temple, Sahure built a pyramid of comparable size while completing an extensive mortuary temple, a valley temple, and exquisitely decorated causeway. In these scenes, the king goes fishing, attended by his favoured wife. In another scene, he goes hunting, attended by his son, Ranefer, who would soon become the king, Nefer-ir-Kare. The royal princes are visible like never before. At least five are attested by name, and in person, in these scenes. Until now, we've had to scrape up references. Lucky if we learn the identity of any but the one who succeeded his father on the throne. Then, in the next scenes, we get to Sahure's greatest achievement. After many months, perhaps years of preparation, the king steps onto his royal flagship and dispatches a royal expedition, perhaps the first of its kind, to the land of Punt. Returning with all good things, including sweet-smelling frankincense and myrrh trees, the king presents them to the court, while the queen mother looks on. In architecture and art, Sahure established himself as a new peak in royal splendour. His expedition to Punt, and a campaign to Libya, which is referenced briefly, set him up as a strong start to this new dynasty. The royal tomb was sophisticated in layout, exquisite in its artistic grace, and richly varied in the subject matter of its scenes. The family itself was strong, numerous, wealthy, and supremely powerful within the state. Having completed and perpetuated his father's sun temple, while in the process adding his own name to it, Sahure continued the unification of solar deity and mortal king, bringing the theological aura of his majesty to a new peak. By this, the fifth dynasty has started strongly, and it will continue to be strong for many years in several episodes. Next time, we will follow the career of a young prince, Ra Nefer, who would become the king Nefer Irkare Kakai. Under his rule, Egypt will remain prosperous and wealthy, but the truly interesting material comes from his pyramid complex. A discovery of papyrus archives reveals to us the inner workings of the Egyptian temples, shedding light on the economic structures of the state, and the interplay between a royal administrative system and a theological organisation. The sun temples of Abu Sir and the royal ideology, while linked, are divergent in their goals. And as we will see, this has many implications, both for how we understand Egyptian kingship, and how we understand the role of divinities in a society as fanatical about worship as the Egyptian culture was.